In this episode of Balancing the Christian Life, we talk about how to fit dinosaurs in the Bible record. Welcome to Balancing the Christian Life. I'm Dr. Kenny Amber. Join me as we discover how to be better people and Christians in the digital age. This is an episode that means a lot to me because it involves two guys I just love. I've talked about my son Kent a few times on the podcast. Unlike my other children, Kent is probably my most reserved child. He just doesn't like a lot of attention. Emma, Abby, and Jake all seem to either enjoy or at least not mind being the subject of a conversation, but that's not Kent. So one day, during announcements at my congregation, one of the members at the church talked about the earth being around 10,000 years old, and Kent had never heard that before. So he asked about it on the way home. It was an interesting discussion. I told Kent this wasn't my area of expertise, and I asked around to see who might have better information on a Christian's perspective on the age of the world. That's when Scott Beyer, an evangelist in Louisville and a good friend, said this was one of his passions. So I asked him, would he mind talking to my son Kent? And that's exactly what happened. For about an hour, Kent asked all of his questions, and Scott did a great job of giving some well-thought-out answers. As we were talking, I thought this would make a really cool episode for the podcast. So I asked Kent, and not surprisingly, he wasn't interested in having his voice recorded. So I asked him, what if you wrote the questions? And I just had a similar conversation with Scott for the podcast. Kent was all right with that. And that's what we did. In this conversation, we talk about dinosaurs, the age of the earth, and what a Christian can learn from the physical sciences. And the guy who wrote the questions is my son, Kent. I thought these were thought through pretty well. So, Scott, let's start here. Are there dinosaurs in the Bible? So dinosaurs are not a primary focus of the Bible. And one of the things that I think people run into with the fact that we have this very clear geologic history that dinosaurs are a thing. I really struggle when people are like, ah, I don't know, dinosaurs might be a fairy tale. I've seen that approach. I don't think that's true. I think dinosaurs are real. But then the question that naturally comes up then is, why doesn't the Bible talk more about them? And the reason is the Bible isn't about dinosaurs. It also doesn't talk about cockroaches a lot either. That doesn't mean cockroaches <laughs> don't exist. It just means they weren't a primary focus of the biblical account of history. So day five, day six are where you get the sea creatures, you get the birds of the air, and then day six is where you get the land animals. If you start counting up the different kinds of dinosaurs, you're somewhere in the vicinity of 50 different kinds of dinosaurs now. Wow. You, within sauropods, there's a whole bunch of different versions of sauropods, but they all are roughly within a single kind. In the same way that you talk about big cats, there's a lot of different big cats, but they all fit into the cat category or lots of different types of dogs, but they all fit within the dog category. So 
all dinosaurs fit within one of those roughly 50 kinds, as far as we can tell. Some of them are sea-dwelling, some of them are like pterodactyls flying, and some of them are land-dwellers. So day five, day six. How and why did they go extinct? I think one of the things that we need to do as Christians, we're looking at these kind of scientific conversations is do two things at once. We need to, one, hold the biblical account and hold true to it so we don't adjust the Bible account in order to match whatever the current modern scientific theory is. That happens a lot that with the age of the earth question in particular, people said, oh, now modern science is saying maybe we're millions of years old or billions of years old. Now I go back to Genesis and I rewrite the account of Genesis to somehow fit all that time in, either between one or two verses, it's called the gap theory of Genesis, or each day actually represents an age, and so we stretch it out. That doesn't match the biblical account, from my view. The biblical account makes it very clear there was morning, there was evening one day. So we need to hold true to the Bible account of the story. But then the other thing is there's a lot that the Bible account doesn't tell us. So that's where we've got some room to investigate. And I think God designed us to investigate his creation. That's part of having dominion over something is not just shaping it to what you want, but also investigating it and learning about it. And so as we learn more about dinosaurs, several of the prevailing theories that are out there, and I don't know which one's the right one. I have some that I lean more towards than others. So the evolutionary one that's most popular is a meteorite. I don't hold to that one because I don't see that fitting within the biblical account very well, but Mm. very one uh, that is quite heavily debated even in evolutionary models is volcanic ash. It leads to a great deal of change in climate, and that leads to the eventual extinction of the dinosaurs. That model, I think, actually fits pretty well in with the biblical account because the floods of Noah's day, that worldwide catastrophic flood, would most definitely have created volcanic events that would have led to an ice age that follows afterwards. So when you get the large amount of warming of the oceans and then something that cools the land, particularly elements in the air like ash that reflects the sunlight, that is the makings of an ice age because you cool the temperatures of the summer. It's actually not about making the winters colder. It's more about making the summers not as hot. And if that event happens, you get an ice age. And there's a lot of evidence that that is one of the primary enders of the dinosaur's existence. Another thing that the Bible gives us a potential hint about is the fact that man before the flood was a vegetarian. We were eating green things, and that was what was given to us and given to the animals to eat. And to the best of our knowledge, that continued up to the days of Noah. And then that prohibition on carnivorous eating (laughs) was removed after the flood. That would have impacted humans and potentially would have impacted, that may also be the moment where animals became carnivorous too. That changes the game a lot. And if you're hungry, a dinosaur looks pretty good. There's a lot of animals that are extinct simply because of human beings. I used to work at a zoo and I've given that spiel a lot of times about uh, how much human beings impact habitat and extinction level events. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. There are a lot of animals that have gone extinct. And by the same token, we have new varieties of dog. Uh, we have bred many different 
breeds dog? Yeah. Yeah, there's a difference between macroevolution and microevolution. So macroevolution is where one thing turns into something entirely, right? That's right. the model that Darwin requires for his model. You start with a one-celled organism, and eventually over time, as the evolutionists to say time is the hero of the plot with evolution, you give it enough mm -hmm. time and that one-celled uh, creature evolves into mankind and other higher life forms. We've never observed that. There's no transitional forms. That's a whole nother discussion, but the missing link is still missing. However, microevolution we see all the time where creatures within their kind, and that's probably and use that language because that's Bible language. God made these creatures according to their kind. And when you read Genesis chapter one, that's what it talks about is each one according to their kind. Within cats, there's a vast amount of diversity within mm -hmm. even things like iguanas. There's a lot of diversity within iguanas, but they're still iguanas. And it's an oscillating evolution as well. In the Galapagos Islands, Darwin observed finches, and some had long beaks and some had short beaks. One of the major factors in his development of the evolutionary theory is that they were changing to meet their environment. What is not included in that is they've now studied those exact same finches over time and they oscillate depending on the needs, whether there's a larger food supply of nuts or bugs or whatever, the long beak ones will win out for a while and then it oscillates back to short beak ones. There's evolution in microevolution, there's evolution, but only with intolerances. One of the things that, that, goes around, I've heard this before, I'm sure you have as well, that the earth is only about 6,000 years old. Why do we think that's true? I would be somebody who would fit into that category. I'd be a young earther. If you want right. to smack a label on my forehead, that's the one you'd get. The reason that I would hold to that view is back to that balance thing. There's lots of things we don't know, but then there's things that we do know from the Bible. So the Bible doesn't mm -hmm. cover every scientific detail, but there are some that it does. And the chronology of the world seems to be pretty evident within the text. So if you go from Adam to Abraham, you have roughly 2,000 years. From Abraham to Jesus, you have roughly another 2,000 years. And from Jesus to modern-day America, you have about another 2,000 years. So we estimate that at around 6,000 years. There is some room for variance, I think, in those numbers that the Bible leaves open, but not a lot. We could vary maybe 500 years or even 1,000 years one way or another, but mm -hmm. a million years one way or another. You Even if you bump the earth up and say, I think it's 10,000 years old, that's still a really long distance from the millions of years that the evolutionary model not only says, but requires. Let me ask you this. What if I think differently about that? Can I still be a Christian and think differently? Yes. Th that's my short answer to that is yes. You do not <laughs> have to agree with me on the age of the earth in order to follow Jesus. I would still be right, but you don't have to agree with me in order for it to be true. Although what I think I found and my journey as both somebody who's a, kind of a science geek was in the zoological world for a long time and heard a lot of the arguments, several things. One, the old age view has a lot of assumptions mm -hmm. that lead to circular logic. We believe that the earth is old. So when we go looking for evidence, we look only for the evidence that would 
back that up. And we disregard anything that wouldn't back up our view. And that's not good science. That's the opposite of good science. Good science actually looks to disprove itself all the time. So if you look at the, the model for a scientific experiment, you're supposed to create a hypothesis. And then you're supposed to try and disprove that hypothesis. Right. I'm convinced evolutionists have done the exact opposite of that. They found a theory that allowed them to feel intellectually satisfied in a world without God mm-hmm. and then went looking for ways to accrue evidence for it. So that's mm-hmm. one reason that I have come to the view that the old earth view isn't good is because there's a lot of pieces of evidence that model has to disregard. When I read the Bible, an old earth view creates some major problems with the biblical account. One is you would have to believe in a world that has death before sin, because evolution is primarily a death process, right? One thing dies and another thing dies and another thing dies, and slowly over time you get where you need to. And then the other thing is it creates a problem for the literal Adam and Eve. Are Adam and Eve real people, or are they like those days? where we don't say day one is a real day, but it's actually kind of an age. Are Adam and Eve just parables? In which case now, when it says in the New Testament that one sin entered through one man, and then it's removed because of one man, that first man's not a real man. Is Jesus not a real man? So there's all sorts of problems you run into. Another problem are just some practical issues. They found fossilized plants with thorns on them. I know in the biblical account exactly where thorns entered the picture. It was after sin in the garden. Right. So when they say, we found these 400 million year old fossilized thorns, that's problematic for me. If they're 400 million years old, then the Bible account is not accurate. There are some very difficult things you have to grapple with if you're going to to hold the Bible and also hold an old earth view. But Scott, as a scientist, I understand if you start off with your conclusions about what the world has to be because you just take the Bible at its word, you are also starting off with the conclusion in mind. So how are you not offending exactly the same principle as a scientist who starts off with the conclusion as well? In one sense, that argument is absolutely correct. I think one of the differences is that I'm going to own it. When I talk to a lot of the guys that I would work with at the zoo, they would talk about it like they didn't have any preconceived notions. Right. And I did. No, we both have. We both are entering with a hypothesis and then looking to see whether the evidence matches that model, right? Mm -hmm. The atheist has to have faith the same way I do. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is, is faith is evidence of things not seen. That's a biblical definition, Hebrews chapter 11. So I, as a theist, do not see God And as a young earther, I don't see God creating the world in six days. I never saw that with my own two eyes. Right. I just have to look and see where does the evidence point? Mm -hmm. Is there better evidence for a young world that has been created and shaped by catastrophic events like the Bible describes? Right. Or is there better evidence for everything being created slowly over time by unseen accidental processes. 
the more I've looked at it, the more I see the word design. We live in a very designed world. Everything Mm -hmm. is highly balanced. And if you go through a zoo and you look at all the different animals and you even read about the different animals, you will learn that their habitat is specific and designed, that their bodies and physiology are specifically designed. The way they interact with each other is specifically designed. So everything in the world around us points towards a very complex design, Mm -hmm. which makes me think there should be a designer. That doesn't sound accidental at all. Both are entering in with a hypothesis. The question is, does the model back your hypothesis or not? I think the evidence backs a young earth uh, theistic worldview much better. And that's what Roman says as well. Romans chapter one says that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. And I think that is exactly true. The more I've studied the evidence in the natural world, the more I find his unseen hand. But what about the stars? We know that when we look up at the stars, we're looking at a time machine because the light from those stars has taken Scott, several billion years to get here. Why do we somehow think that the Earth is only 10,000 years old when we know how fast light travels? This is a good question. It's not a foolish or ignorant thing to ask about light because we do know light travels at a constant speed. It's a good thing that light is a constant. If it wasn't, we'd have major problems. So we look at light and we look at things like redshift that exist in astronomy And the study of that, we can tell the distance of the stars based off of the time that light has to travel. What we're not factoring in is that God created a universe at full maturity. Mm -hmm. If you think about Adam and Eve, when Adam is six minutes old, how old does he look? He looks like what? He's 30, 20? I don't know. But he looks, he's a man, right? This is not an infant, This is a man. And Eve, when she is created, she's six minutes old and she's a woman. And they're they're already in a position where they are capable of procreation and being fruitful and multiplying. So these are full-grown adults. And everything else in the creation story is the same way. So the animals are brought to Adam and he's naming them. And these are full-grown animals. These are not baby chicks. These are chickens. Everything is one minute old, so to speak. But it's also manifesting itself as fully grown. God makes the universe and he puts the stars at the distance they need to be. But the light has already traveled the distance it needs to travel. Because if it hadn't, and we wait for a million years for all that light to come, there's other problems. God understands that as the perfect creator. And so he creates it in a state of motion and maturity, just like he did Adam and Eve. Everything that you believe has to have a level of faith to it. That faith is not blind. It is based on evidence. There is evidence that you have to interpret on both sides of this. If you are going to decide that this is all happenstance and this is all a a cosmic mistake, then you're going to have to grapple with the design problems. With evolution, for example, a venomous snake, evolution says you only develop one thing at a time. So why would you develop a hollow tooth that can do very little 
except for inject venom? Do you develop a brittle tooth that has no function, then develop venom? Or do you develop venom that has no mechanism by which to inject it into some something that, so you really only develop one of those things at a time, but you really need both of those things in order for it to function. Does that make sense to you? Oh yeah, absolutely. So what you're discussing is a, a principle called irreducible complexity. Some things are irreducibly complex. They don't really mean anything or do anything by themselves. And classic irreducibly complex thing is a mousetrap. So a mousetrap has just a few basic parts. It's got a platform, it's got a spring, it's got a latch to release it. And without any of those things, you remove any one of them, you don't have a mousetrap. You've just got parts, right? And animals are very much in that model of irreducibly complex. So one of my favorite animals is a giraffe. If you ever get a chance to feed a giraffe, it's such a cool thing. It's absolutely (laughs) worth doing. And they are these gentle giants. You'll see them and you reach your hand up and they will bend their neck down to take the food out of your hand. What you don't understand when you just look at them from the outside is the mechanics to do what they're doing, where they reach and bend their neck down are really complex because they have a massive heart that's pumping blood all the way up to their head. It's fighting against gravity. Mm -hmm. And that's why it has to be that big. Otherwise they're brain dead. The blood never gets to their brain. But the moment that they reach their head down below their heart, if there weren't any safety valves, they die. If you've ever had blood rush to your head, it's the same principle, except their brain blows up. So they have safety valves in their neck that will shunt the amount of blood flow based off of the amount of gravitational force their head is dealing with at whatever level their neck is. All of those parts have to be there at the same time. If you don't have the heart, you don't have what you need to get the blood flow there. But if you don't have the shunts, you have a dead giraffe and dead giraffes don't evolve. And examples of that are everywhere. Like you said, the venomous snake, the bombardier beetle, all sorts of creatures that have irreducibly complex elements to them where all the things need to be there at the same time. And that's a creation statement, not an evolution statement. This is another one of Kent's questions. Does the Bible talk about dinosaurs? Yeah, it does in a couple of different ways. The term dinosaur is a word that is newer than the Bible. So it was coined in the 1800s, and it stands for giant lizard. So the Bible doesn't use the word dinosaur because the word dinosaur didn't exist anywhere more than the word megabyte existed. It's a new term that came with a more modern era. But Creatures that look like and must be dinosaurs do exist in the Bible. The best example of that, I think, is Job. In the book of Job, in chapter 40 and 41, God is describing to Job two creatures, the behemoth and the leviathan. And both of these creatures do not match the description of any known. The behemoth is this land creature with a tail like a cedar And it is massive and yet gentle. It has this big, strong belly. And it points in every way to a sauropod. The Leviathan is a sea creature that is massive and points to a lot of the fossil records that we have of these massive sea dinosaurs. And what's interesting about Job is that the whole point of God mentioning the behemoth and the Leviathan to Job is to say, 
Job, I made these things. I have power over even these massive creatures. If they are pretend animals, then that argument makes no sense to Job. It, right. it only works if God's telling me about real animals that are really pretty big and terrifying and strong. And God is saying, see, they even listen to me. And Job goes, that's right. They're mentioned right alongside other animals and other natural phenomenon like the tides that God says, I control these. I've set the boundaries of the seas. If you just go to the Old Testament, there's about 20 different references to dragons. And if you read your Bible in the old 1611 King James Version, they would all come up as dragon. These are creatures known to the people of the time. And yet we would go, oh, mythological. I think dragon is a pretty good descriptor of a dinosaur if you didn't have the word dinosaur. Yeah. And we have records of dragons in every culture on every continent, except Antarctica. No people there. But (laughs) all the other ones, they've got historical records of people talking about dragons as if they are real things. Right. And that's up to the 1400s in England. And these are not storytellers. These are like the news. They're like, yeah, there was this village over here and this dragon came in and we had to take care of it. And the people were thankful. And they're not listing it like some knight in shining armor tale. They're just talking about life. Yeah, came out of the woods, had to deal with it. It was a problem. And they talk about them as the dragon has a crested head. Sorts of descriptors that match what we know dinosaurs to look like. We didn't recognize that dinosaurs existed until 1800s. But they're talking about them as if they're around and alive. And so I I think the term dragon is a biblical word that is used to describe dinosaurs. Did man and dinosaur actually coexist? Yeah, and I think the biblical account is yes. Now, for what period of time? I think pre-flood, Definitely. Into the days of Job, at least, there's some level of cohabitation. But we also have to remember that the imagery that we've been given as kids is dinosaurs roaming the earth like they are overpopulating it, like there's dinosaurs on every corner. Like everywhere Mm -hmm. you turn your head, there's a dinosaur. So that's one myth that we have to deal with. Dinosaurs, most of them are going to be higher up in the food chain. They're not everywhere. In the same way that I coexist in a world with tigers, but I have never run into them going to pick up my mail. So that's one aspect to it. Another aspect is not all dragons are T-Rexes. Thank you, Jurassic Park. They're not all huge. The average dinosaur that we found the archaeological digs is the size of a sheep. So dinosaurs are not all massive. You have the bigger ones. You have the T-Rexes. You certainly have the sauropods, very big. But many of them are normal size. So they're not as plentiful as people assume post-flood. And we don't know how long they existed post-flood. There's a lot of evidence to point towards them being one of the animals that did not really do well in a post-flood world. And so, yeah, I do think human beings existed together with them. We also have some other interesting anecdotal information from things like the Ica stones in Peru. There's these things called death rocks. In Peru, They there was a time period where there was a culture when somebody died, they would inscribe a stone with how they died. And In some of those stones, there's pictures of people being chewed on by Stegosaurus. 
things that point towards them living and coexisting with dinosaurs and hunting them. There is evidence that backs up the biblical account that humans coexisted with dinosaurs. But again, this is not like there are pets and we're hanging out together. Right. It's like me saying I live in the same world as tigers, but that's not an everyday thing. What you're talking about there is the Jurassic Park view of dinosaurs. That dinosaurs, number one, rule the planet. They're everywhere and there is no man anywhere. Which, by the way, is based on a series of assumptions that some people are making about the age of the Earth, how many dinosaurs are out there, et cetera, et cetera. And what evidence did they have for that? I wasn't alive back then, and neither were they. These are smart people that are making educated guesses based on a set of assumptions, and sometimes they articulate those assumptions, and oftentimes they just don't. And I don't think it's always done maliciously. No, I think I there think are so, some yeah. who suppress the evidence purposefully, but yeah. I think there's a lot that don't. When I was growing up and going through high school and sitting in every science class I could get, there came a point in my junior year that I had the principal have to tell me, you've taken literally every science class we have to offer. We're out. Mm -hmm. I love science. And my worldview was evolutionary because I had been told that's what smart people believe. And so you just buy into it. Right. It was only after I did some digging for myself that I realized, wait a second, there is another option. There's a lot of people under that assumption. And a lot of times what's interesting is scientists are, are typically specialists, right? Yeah. So they specialize in one area. And what they'll often say is there's some problems that we haven't got worked out with evolution in my specialty. Right. But the assumption is all the other guys have got it figured out. But then you go to the other guy and he says, there's some problems with evolution in my specialty, but all the other guys got it figured out. And that's a common theme that I found was that when you talk to people about their area of speciality, they knew there were some major problems with Darwinian evolution or neo-Darwinian evolution, which is more popular now. Whether you're talking about evolution slow over time or punctuated evolution where we have short bursts of evolution, they knew there were some major problems with that. Yeah. But they assumed they were the only ones with that problem and that all <laughs> the other areas of science had to figure it out. And I think that is probably the most common issue that you run into. If there are these gaps that everybody's having with this, why do they so vociferously hang on to evolution? There's a couple of reasons I think that happens. Scientists like to tout themselves as following the data, but every scientist I know, they get frustrated, they become beholden to their theories. They get afraid of losing grant money. That's a major Absolutely. thing. There is a, an excellent documentary that was done on um, what happens in the scientific community when you question, even questioning the evolutionary model will get you expelled from the highest levels of education. You're going to lose your grant money and that's everything. So you just keep your mouth shut. So sometimes it's fear-based. Sometimes it's the fact that they're comfortable in that assumption. So why question it, right? I've got other fish to fry. I got other things to do. I'm not really thinking about it. So this other guy says this works and they say the science is with us. And again, I don't see that my specialty, but I, the, all these other guys say it. So, okay, fine. And so there becomes a group think element to it. But then the other piece of it is there's definitely a 
benefit to a world without God, because a world without God is a world where I get to be God. Darwin himself had been deeply hurt in his life. He had suffered a lot of major losses. And one of the primary objections to the God of the Bible that is brought up by today's generations, if they're suffering, how can there be a God? Mm -hmm. So when people suffer, one way they try and deal with that suffering is to frame the narrative. Like, why did I go through this? And one way to answer that is to say, there is no God. It's just a world of suffering. I don't think that's the right answer, but right. it's an understandable one. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. You talked specifically about Darwin. And one of the things that we know about, are you familiar with the book itself, The Origin of Species? Yeah. So yeah. do you know which edition of, do you know how many editions Darwin came out with? I don't off the top of my head. I know there was more than one, but I couldn't tell you the exact number. Yeah. I'll go ahead and tell you. He came out with six editions of The Origin of Species. Six editions. And one of the things, when you go to the bookstore now, do you know which edition that you're buying? No, this is a really great line of thought. I have not ever considered this, but no, I'm, I would guess the sixth edition, but I'm probably wrong because of the fact you're bringing it up. You are wrong. You're buying the first edition. And the reason that you're buying the first edition is because many scientists believe that Darwin made too many concessions as he published later editions. The sixth edition, many people believe that he made way too many concessions to the church. But the first edition is the one that you're actually buying. Fascinating. Yeah, I took a class. It was called The Rhetoric of science. And the argument that the professor made throughout the entire course was Darwin was not the first person to come up with natural selection. He was not the first person to come up with mutation of species. He was the first person like Henry Ford to popularize this idea. His greatest contribution was not necessarily coming up with the science behind this, but having intellectuals believe in him. In other words, the political game behind the science. It was really interesting because the professor that taught the class actually brought in and had us read text that basically gives all the tenets of Darwinian evolution before Darwin proposed it. And his argument was Darwin's genius was his ability to persuade people. He was a scientist. He absolutely made these observations himself, but he was not the first one. Mm -hmm. And when he wrote all this down, he was connected enough to get intellectuals interested in what he was saying. When you look at the next five editions of this book, he makes some concessions to some people in religious communities. So when you pick up the book, you are not looking at the sixth edition. You're looking at the first edition. Darwin did recognize he didn't have all the data. Yeah. Right? He said, look, we, there's lots of areas of science we don't know as much about. He didn't know anything about cells or DNA, any of those things. The building blocks of life, he assumed were more rudimentary than the, the larger organism. Prevailing view at the time was human beings are like Legos. If you get down to the smaller pieces, they're pretty simple, but you put them all together and you get something complex. And of course, now we know differently DNA and 
RNA and cells are wildly complex. Darwin left room in his private writings, especially in letters, to the fact that as we gain information, he believed evolution would hold up, but it's possible it wouldn't. He believed that the fossil record would back it up. It didn't. The fossil record does not back up a slow progression. Instead, we have what's called the Cambrian explosion. So in one layer of time, all life happens at once. He assumed that when we learned more about biology and microbiology, especially, that would show us how rudimentary things were, and that would show us the mechanisms for evolution. It did not. Even a virus is just insanely complex, as we've all experienced in the last few years. It's a big deal. He knew that there were things he didn't know, and he left room to evolve his own view, pun intended. What's interesting from what you're saying is he did over six editions evolve his views, and they had to remove the evolution of Darwin's views in order to hold to that model. And that's a shame. See, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about when you say you ignore evidence that doesn't back up your position. That's a very unscientific approach. Has studying dinosaurs strengthened your faith, or has it detracted from your faith? It strengthened it. I have found several things that have come in trying to weave my understanding of the Bible and my understanding of science together and trying to understand how those two worlds exist together. I don't think it is a matter of the science being against the Bible. I think scientists and preachers have plenty of battles, (laughs) but (laughs) science and the Bible has no problem whatsoever. The same God that made science also made the Bible. Right. And as I've studied these things, I find it strengthens my faith and that I understand they don't have to be opposed to each other, which means that the world that I'm living in is also the same world I've been given an instruction manual for. I've found myself more willing to say, I don't know, (laughs) or here's some interesting possibilities. And it's okay to not know. I used to, especially the younger I was, and some of this comes with age maybe, but I would jump immediately to whatever the scientists were saying today. But you give it 10 years and those same scientists are saying something different because they're muddling through with what data they have. Right. It's not always some malicious agenda against God. It's just the fact they're muddling through with partial information. That's one of the reasons we need the Bible. You go back to the creator to understand the creation. I don't get worked up when some new piece of data comes out and they say, oh, we found the missing link give it a week. Realistically, that's what ends up happening is lots of things that they thought were transitional forms or the missing link turn out to be, oh, it's just another ape or, oh, it's actually just a human. And these things that I used to think were a danger for my faith, I've seen God stands the test of time. I don't have anything to be afraid of. And that's very comforting to have that. Scott, what did we miss? We need more Christians who are unafraid to live their faith in the scientific community. Um, Far too long, the atheistic worldview has been given the megaphone and been allowed to seize control of that territory. And I just don't think it's accurate. 
And I love when young men and women want to work at zoos or they want to be marine biologists or they want to work in some field of archaeology or geology or anything along those lines because they are now being the salt. We need more salt in these areas. Any young person who has an interest in scientific things in that course of study or career, your faith will stand the test of that. It's not going to destroy your faith. Ask good questions, challenge assumptions, surround yourself with voices other than the ones you'd sometimes get in higher education that are one-sided. We need you in these fields. And I think we live in a great era for Christians and the natural world. I end all my podcasts with be good and do good. What's good about seeing God in nature? The good thing about seeing God in nature is what Genesis tells you. God makes these things and he says it's good. There's something really wonderful about seeing God's invisible attributes enacted in the natural world that he made. It's a beautiful world. When you see these things God made, it causes a sense of reverence and awe. We have a big God who cares about small people. Scott, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me, Kenny. Love you and love what you do. There's a lot here I don't really understand, but I'm very grateful for Scott and his explanations and interest in helping my son and his dad literally put dinosaurs in their place. By the way, Scott has just recently started his own podcast, Love Better, which he releases on Tuesdays. I'm so blessed to know Scott and thrilled he is doing this as well. Please support him. He's just an excellent guy. As for the good thing I'm thinking about, I'm grateful for new beginnings and old friends. This semester is about to get started, and I'm getting excited all over again for teaching students and also resurrecting some things I had to quit last semester because of the workload. I love what I do. I love my students. I'm also grateful for friends like Edwin Crozier, Josh Creel, Mark McCrary, Sean Heifel, and Hoover and several others who reached out and just asked how things were going and then listened. That's a true blessing. Thanks for being an ear and having concern. I do have one change to the podcast that I need to make. You probably noticed in the last couple of months I've missed two or three episodes. I apologize. That was not something that I wanted to have happen. And really with the last episode in my reading, Luke, I felt like I gave you a lot of material to uh, take in. That said, what I've noticed is a lot of the work for the podcast is starting to land on Saturdays. I've been releasing the podcast on Saturdays, but I'm going to move the release day to Sunday which gives me Saturday to work on the podcast. This is probably the second or third time that I've made a change on the day of release. It's not a big deal, but one of the things that I know is this is a part of my life. I just enjoy too much to give up. As long as this is helping you, I promise this is helping me. I have so enjoyed getting to have conversations that I think are important. 
and I appreciate you so much for joining me on this journey. Thank you. Next time on the podcast, I plan to release my conversation with Trisha Stahl. She's just written a book about younger Christians, and I loved what we were able to discuss. (laughs) I've also got a conversation with the Bible geeks, Brian and Ryan. I just love those guys. So until next time, let's be good and do good.